Attention Chicago listeners, I am part of a group show at my art studio. It will include drawing, painting, sculpture, and more. The opening reception is Friday, May 10th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Greenleaf Art Center in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. For more information, visit rickyartist.com. On this episode of Eager to Know, an insight into the world of practical movie effects and the power of imagining yourself successful at what you want to do. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. John McDavid is a muralist who paints large public murals. We met at an art industry event, and I immediately liked him. I found his energy fantastic, and he's really easy to talk to. His background is very different from mine, and I always like to speak with people who have had a different creative journey than me. One of the things that I found very cool was where he got the initial spark to his creativity. So, John, tell me about your experience in special effects makeup, because I know that that is near the early part of your creative career, and it's something that I don't know anything about, and it sounds really interesting. Well, I grew up with um, a a mom who loved monster movies, so we watched all these bad monster movies, and I I was a child of the 70s, and uh, special effects were not stellar all, all always most of the time in horror movies and uh around 1977 star wars came out and okay. so that blew my hair back i was like wow that was amazing and i knew that i loved the creatures in there and i uh, um, had a dad who was really creative and my dad uh he was a mechanic by trade but he when he wasn't working he'd take me out to the garage and he'd be like let's let's melt colored glass together i got i've got you know oxycetylene tanks let's melt it down or let's paint a mural or like he would just do all of these very creative crazy things that's definitely not let's toss a ball around that's like no (laughs) that is a unique father-son interaction yeah it was pretty cool i mean he was he was very creative and he was very generous, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, hey, you do it, or you can do this, okay. or you can be good at this. So um, I, I naturally then, I think I had a natural disposition to be creative, and I drew a lot as a child, but then having, you know, that kind of fuel on the fire yeah. was really good. So so anyway, you know, special effects were getting better in the movies, and then my folks, when I was 10, they, they took me and a friend to see An American Werewolf in London, and I don't know if you're familiar with that or I have, not. I have never seen it. I almost saw it about two weeks ago, and I altered, I, I opted for something else on Netflix, but um, I, I have not seen it. Well, even the movie, it's a John Landis movie, and it's it's I, I, it's amusing. And so it's, wait, John Landis is the Michael Jackson thriller guy? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. So did he... Okay, so the whole thriller yeah. werewolf yeah. was, I had no idea. But I did, I the did connection between those two guys, because John Landis also did what? Uh, Animal House and uh, 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 Coming to America, Trading Places, those movies. 
um, Blues Brothers. But he, so he had this idea, I guess, years before those movies that he wanted to make a werewolf movie. Okay. And uh, prior to that, the first thing he had made was a movie called Schlock. And he found Rick Baker. And Rick Baker was this young up-and-coming special effects makeup artist who who made him up like some missing link was the deal with that. Well... What do you mean a missing link? He, he, the schlock was the name of the movie, and the main character was the schlockthropus, and it was a missing link. Oh, I and see. And so that was, that was the deal, was that he was like this missing link character running around. And so when American Werewolf in London came around uh, and, and it got greenlit, he hired Rick Baker to do the effects for it. And so I'm watching this movie as a 10-year-old. And this is after Star Wars? After Star Wars, about three or four years. And this dude turns into a werewolf, like on screen. We, we don't know even the concept of computer-generated effects at right. this point, right? There's, it's no, there's no CGI, no pixels. Right. It's all, you know, practical effects is what they would call it. It exists in real time and reality. So it's rubber stretching, it's jump cuts and edits. But it looks like this guy has turned into a monster. And, and that's called practical effects yeah. as opposed to CGI? Yeah, CGI or digital effects, uh, which is... I've never, heard that pra- I've never heard that term practical effects. Yeah. Well, yeah. I love learning something new. So that's, that's great. Yeah, something that exists in the real world. It's practical, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem is, is you have to plan for practical if you're going to shoot it. And so they do a lot of digital now because it just, it, it, you know makes up for loose ends you don't have to plan for digital you do that in post-production right and there's uh, probably a lot of creativity that can happen post-production yes and i would say you can throw money at stuff and and for me a lot of the digital looks kind of lazy okay whereas if you have a practical effect you know there's a design process and things have to be made and approved and and it just you know i'm probably showing my age but I, I like practical effects because people can interact with it. They're not looking at some ball on a stick right. that then somebody in post-production is trying to make eyes match with. Sure. Um, so so anyway, I see this guy turn into a werewolf, 10 years old, and I, I walk out of the theater and I'm like, man, whatever that is, I want that. I want I want to do that. I don't know who did it. I need to know though, and I want to. I want to do that. So that that's interesting to me because most ten year olds would just be scared, whereas you were thinking about how was that created. Yeah, and I want to create that. So yeah. you you saw it as a creative exercise as opposed to just receiving it as a scary event. I did. It's kind of weird, right? That is a that is a little <laughs> weird for a ten year old, but um, but I think it was you know I I was familiar with. Uh, I wouldn't have known his name, but I knew that Jack Pierce had done Karloff's makeup in the Frankenstein movies and that someone had made the creature from the Black Lagoon. And so to see a contemporary, right? I mean, I was 10, but somebody doing it in my time, I was like, man, that's what I want to do. I think I want to do that. And, and part of that also stemmed out of my dad encouraging me that I could do whatever I wanted to do. Like yeah. I could be whoever I wanted to be. Yeah. And... um yeah, it was it was it was a neat concoction of of dad and mom, and then you know fantasy and art and, and moving that direction. Now, your parents encouraging you to do whatever you want and be whatever you can be is that was that both your parents was that yes. mostly your dad and no. do you, and do you have siblings? Yes, and were they the same way with everyone 
or was it? Well, my sister's eight years older than me, so I'm. I she's almost a bit like an aunt. Okay. Um. So I don't know. I we, you know we're very different people. You know, I hear I hear the the saying that um, uh, every every child grows up in a different house, or every brother and sister yeah. grows up in a different house, right? Yeah. Even though it's the same parents. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I grew I my neighborhood. It was all large families. Yeah. And most of the families, every one of the children is completely different. Yeah. And you know they have different personalities they have different they're in different places in their lives and they all had the same parents yeah but i think um so that's that sounds like a really important part of your story is having this foundation around being um so you know supportive parents and um being any being able to be whatever you want because i hear that a lot from people as i interview people that are creative and successful in in being creative uh that that is a common thread that i hear mm. um that's amazing well i see it in my experience i i've certainly seen people who have not had the support and they're successful yeah but they're there seems to be, at least in my my personal experience, if if I run into a wall or I'm having a bad season, um, I I just have that kind of encouraging, optimistic mm-hmm. uh, spirit of of my mom and dad saying, "You you can do this. It's okay. You can do it." You know, right. and I'm almost fifty. Yeah. So that that gets into the DNA somehow. Completely. Yep. Yeah. Well, great. So you had, it sounds like a couple things were happening here. We had some exposure to special effects as a young child. You had the support from your family and your your mom and your dad that you can be and do anything. And so where did that, where did that lead you? So um, I started to read all these different magazines that I would say would be like horror magazines like Fangoria. Fangoria, yeah. Um there you go. Or Cinefax was another one that yeah. had come out at the time which really got into the the pra- how practical effects were done now it's almost all digital. Um and and I started to read about some of these different effects artists Tom Savini, Stan Winston Studios apart from Rick Baker. And back in the early middle 80s, you could call up 411 and you could ask for Stan Winston Studios' phone number in Van Nuys, California, and you'd get the number, and then you could call them. So, and I'm, Stan Winston did the um, the dinosaur, the yep, the, Jurassic Park, the Jurassic Park dinosaurs. Um, the what's the term I need to use? The, oh, he did the practical effects. The practical the, effects, and yes. they would call them what animatronics, animatronics right? Giant yeah, animatronics. Okay. And he had done what Predator, um, uh, Aliens. You know, it's so many. I mean, they do all the Marvel movies today, or a lot of the work in the Marvel movies. But Stan passed away about five, six years ago. Um, so, so I'd call a studio up. I was about fourteen or fifteen, and I had a, I had a deeper voice. My voice had broken, and I would just ask, "Could I talk to somebody about you know?" And, I, and the names of the people were in these magazines, so I could ask for Alec Gillis or somebody. And I'd get Alec Gillis on the phone. And what? And what? What was your intention? You just wanted to chat with them. I I want to know how to get to where they were, <laughs> and so I just call these people up. This random kid. So you wanted to be a special effects 
designer developer right. and right. you were just making phone calls. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah. At 14 years and old. I, and I thought, I thought I was worthwhile talking to. Like I had that kind of attitude. <laughs> it was like, well, of course I want, they want to talk to me. I want, I want to be their friend and I right. want to work with them and do cool <laughs> things with them. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy when I sit here saying it right now, but. I think it sounds great. I think well, it and it was wonderful. fun. You know, it was exhilarating to make the phone call and my heart would be racing. And it would take them a few minutes to realize I wasn't, you know, a 30 year old dude. Yeah. They'd be like, wait, so, so how old are you? 14. Oh, well, then they would start to tell me even more stuff. They'd yeah. be even more open and willing to spend time. I only have one person, I won't say who it was, out of everybody who, who just had no time for me. Everybody else had time. And to a person, each one of them suggested that I contact Dick Smith. Okay. Now, Dick Smith was, uh, uh, is well, he's passed away a few years ago, but he was known as the godfather of makeup because okay. he kind of uh, bridged the gap between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. And where everybody was really secretive in old Hollywood, he he just opened up the book. Open he was source. Like, he was like... I'm going to share everything because I want the industry to grow. Okay. And he was so generous. Um, and he developed prosthetic makeup as it exists today. Like he really, he started to do all the separate components. And he did The Exorcist. He did The Godfather movies. He did Amadeus. I uh, won an Oscar for that one. And so I called him up. And again, 15 years old. Uh, get his number, Larchmont, New York. Call him up. And his wife answers the phone. Uh, Hi, I'm John McDavitt from Chicago. Uh, I I was wondering if I could speak with Mr. Smith. Well, he's not here right now. He's actually in Chicago working on a movie. So I said, oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I am in Chicago. And she said, let me get your number and your name, and I'll have him call you. Okay. So I was like, "Uh, okay. I thought to myself, he's not going to call. Right. Like, it's that this, oh, well, it was fun to call them. And so... The next day, I had driver's ad. And so I don't know what that was from, like 9 to noon or something. So I get home, and my mom practically runs out in the front yard and says, Dick Smith has called five times. And I said, really? Okay. So I went in the house. Phone rang. Dick Smith. Hi, John. It's Dick. Uh, I understand, you know, according to my wife, you're really interested in special effects makeup. Yes, I am. Uh, Well, here's my address. Why don't you send me pictures of your work and I'll get back to you. Okay. I, 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 I'm not promising you'll be an effects artist or not. I just I want to look at your work and I'll let you know honestly. And what kind of work would you have done at 15 years old? Lots of drawings and some sculptures. And sculptures and mm-hmm. in, in what what would you use to sculpt with? Uh, I used Roma Plastilina clay. So, it was so it's an like oil-based so clay. So it's a, a clay, yeah. clay sculpture. Yeah. Okay. And you would be doing... Um, like heads or something? Yeah, or? I was trying. I don't know that I really knew exactly where I was going with it. I was I was trying to do life casts, but okay, you know there was no YouTube. You're just kind of okay. figuring it out. So you had an interest, and you were taking action. You were taking yes. action with calling people, and then you were actually getting up every day and working on your craft. Exactly. And and my dad. T- so I had I had this art teacher in middle school, uh, Mr. Scott. And they had had a mural program. And when I was between sixth and seventh grade, I got a wall to do a mural on. I mean, just myself. I had a nine by 16 foot wall to populate in two weeks. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I fell in love with murals. 
And anyway, this this teacher, Mr. Scott, told me, John, if you want to make a living as an artist, you can't take any jobs that aren't art related. And so that kind of burned. At, w- at, at what age? Was seventh grade. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. And so that really like that made a huge impression in my heart. Like I was thinking, okay, this is something that needs to be protected. I I really I don't want to get waylaid into something that isn't art related. And then about the same time. My dad shared with me, he worked at Electromotive and he was a, a, a machine repair is what he did, which was kind of an artisan for any machine. If it needed to be repaired with electrical work okay. or make a piece out of metal. Hence, or, hence you know, having the welding in your garage. Yeah, right, okay, right. That makes all, sense All now. of that. And he, he said to me, um, he said, son, I, I'm going to tell you something I, I, and I just want you to hear it. And uh, he said... I love my job. I make a good living. I left England to come to America to make a better living, and I own a house, and and it's wonderful. But I trade my time for money. Mm -hmm. Don't trade your time for money. Trade your skills or your knowledge for money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't know what that actually meant to me as an eighth grader, however old I was. When well, he told it definitely me that. resonated because but it landed. Yeah, it landed because you told me that before when we when we first met. You meant yeah. you told me that story as well. Yeah, maybe I should just tell everybody that when I, I meet think them, you, I think. it's a good story. <laughs> it's a good story. I wrote that down actually. That's in oh, my that's, that's cool. in my notebook. Yeah. So I had these two bits of information that I I didn't necessarily know what to do with, but they were almost like fire for a caveman. You know, Wor- work only art related jobs. And don't trade your time for money. Trade your skill for money. And so uh, here I am, um, really interested in special effects makeup. I'm a good student. I was fortunate. I didn't have to study real hard to be a BA student. Yep. And uh, I, I wasn't a troublemaker. I didn't get in any trouble. It wasn't worth my time. But I was kind of done with school. Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to go be an artist. And I really wasn't interested in college in regard to getting the degree because I, I just felt like that, that I don't know why I didn't think that wasn't the path for me, but I didn't. And my folks being from England and Ireland really didn't know a lot about the school system here and how it worked. So, okay. uh, I, when I graduated high school, my folks, uh, paid for me to, to be in Dick Smith's course. So he had this course, which was this three part thing. Where, where was that? Well, it was a, a course that, that would be, you know, wherever you were at, he would send you all of his information, uh, all of his... Uh, it was like a correspondence. Exactly. That's correspondence exactly what it was called. Thank you for the word. Correspondence course. And and so I had, you know, all of these uh, uh, stories and anecdotes about Hollywood, suggestions on how to work in Hollywood, suggestions on how to sculpt. A video of him making up Hal Holbrook as uh, Abraham Lincoln for the North and the South and going into all the details of what it took to do that makeup. All of his formulas, all of his contacts in L.A., like all of this information that, I mean, I think at the time, I think it was $6,000, which was nothing, you know, when you Mm -hmm. look in today's numbers. But that was part of my college. And then I actually went to a community college. And while I was there, I wasn't really digging the art courses. And I don't know that I was the easiest student to have. Okay. And so I switched to business. So I started to take accounting and business law and all these business management courses. 
and I needed to start making some money. So I had this airbrush sitting in my garage and airbrushing t-shirts was kind of a thing in the late 80s, 89 I think it was. And so I just sat in the garage all summer learning how to airbrush. I worked, I had never worked eight to 10 hour days in my life. And here I was working eight to 10 hour days, getting paid nothing to figure this thing out. So you were just figuring out how to do it. Yeah. And, um, okay. But you had had experience with the murals. Yeah. Which is related. Yeah. Which is, so I did a little bit of airbrushing on murals, but not a whole lot. Okay. And so it's, it's so strange because I, you know, I'm telling you all these things and it's like all of these different bits and pieces of the ingredients going together to make some kind of bouillabaisse, you know, uh, that hopefully is going to taste good in the end. So, so I, I fell into airbrushing t-shirts and, and I got really good at it and I was fast and I had to sell people on, on everything that I did. And I would, I would paint lettering and I would paint portraits and I would paint dogs and I would paint pictures of cars. And then if somebody wanted a mural, I'd do a mural. I'm doing all these things and I'm, I'm, so I'm kind of doing the special effects thing and trying to figure that out. And then I, uh, I'm airbrushing t-shirts and after airbrushing independently for about a year, uh, it's Christmas time and I'm at a mall and I started uh, at this one particular location the day after Thanksgiving. And I worked uh, up until um, the day before New Year's. So well, so did you have like a, a kiosk or something? Well, they did. They sold shirts. Oh, and you just were uh, hired printed as an employee. Printed and uh, unprinted. Well, I was a subcontractor. So I was my own guy. I'd come with okay. my own equipment. Right. And we had an 80-20 deal. So they'd sell the shirt. Whatever they made on it, they made. And then whatever I painted, I got 80% of it. So how was that for you? Was that a fulfilling job? Well, it was because I like people. Uh, it, It was very, it was almost like performance because you're out in front of everybody making things right away. So are, oh, okay. So are people, when you make something for someone, would they request it and then you make it right in front of them? Generally, okay. if they wanted something very sophisticated, a portrait, it'd, it'd be a few days or a week. Or but generally, something. it was performance. But generally, it was performance. Interesting. And I, there's something about being on the edge of the knife that I like. Like things could go wrong. I kind of yeah. like that. Okay. And so, you know, I, I get through this month or so of the Christmas season and I'm working 11 hour days. And I'm sick. I'm working through being sick. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. You know, all this stuff. I get home. And I was just taking the, the, the cash home at the end of the day. They'd record it and all. And I'd get my cash and bring it home. And I'd kind of throw it in a drawer because I just wanted to go to bed. And so the, the Christmas Eve, I'm home that night. And I'm sick. I'm laying in the bed. And it's like the first really good night's rest I'm having. And I thought, well, let me go see what I made. And so I'm 19, right? I'm counting the money out. I made $11,000 in like four weeks. Okay. And I was like, wow. Airbrushing t-shirts. Yeah. Okay. And now, so I'm going to say what I said earlier about special effects. So you're being paid for your skill, not for your time. Right. In that case. Exactly. And I thought, whatever that is, I want more of that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's good advice from your dad. Oh, yeah. It just kept on showing up. Now... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do just a little bit of a, 
a side story here because there's something else that happened around this time that kind of changed my my paradigm on life. Okay. And I wasn't an athletic kid. My dad wasn't really interested in athletics. Um, I liked to play a little sandlot football. I wasn't any good at it. Uh, and so I had this buddy who I'd been in a play with, and he was an athlete. And he he suggested that we start playing racquetball together. Okay. Said, All right. So I'm 18, and we're going to play racquetball. And we played for like two or three months straight, you know, five days a week for two hours. And I was terrible. Okay. I didn't win a game. I didn't, you know, it was, it was awkward. It's, you know, you got to get used to where the ball goes when you hit it and the angle of your wrist and you're running. And, and so one day uh, I'm playing and he, he hits the ball off the front wall and it's kind of coming toward, toward the back right wall. And I'm thinking to myself, there's, there's no way I'm going to get this. Okay. I, I was making my way over. I was hustling. And I remember I had really negative thoughts about the moment. And I put my hand out with the racket. I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just reach out and see if I can do something. And I hit it. And I killed it off the front wall. It just it died out of the front corner of the, the floor and the wall. And, and I had another epiphany, which was, you mean all I've got to do is show up and try? Like, that's all I've got to do. Good things can happen if you just try. Wow. And it flipped a switch on me that, that started to, to uh, put some competitiveness into what it was that I was doing. And that hit around the same time as the airbrushing t-shirts and making money as an artist. And so, okay, so wait a minute. So you're saying your epiphany was that just showing up is key or something about competitiveness? Yes and yes. My, my epiphany was... It's okay to fail, right? Okay. It's okay to look foolish. What do you want to do? What are, how foolish are you willing to look <laughs> and how willing are you to show up to get where you want to go when you don't know exactly how to get there? So, okay. So that's, that's fantastic. Now, but I feel like from what you've told me so far, I feel like you have not been afraid. You had not been afraid making these phone calls, trying, showing up at a mall and making t-shirts, uh, airbrushing t-shirts. That that seems a little fearless to me. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to get back into my head back then. I think I think I was a I think I was afraid of having to work a regular job. Okay. That was the fear. Oh, okay. It was it, so, this was all driven by Man, I really don't want to work a desk job somewhere. Okay, so that's where um, this not being afraid of trying something new, yeah, um, but doing something creative and doing something that you're training your skills for money. You te- that is a little bit more of a um, risky move. Well, uh, and it felt alive, like it felt alive to me because I I knew I knew that the desk job for me it. It was like death. Yeah. Like it was just something that, that scared the life out of me. But to do something creative, do something that involved um, uh, potential failure. And I mean, I wasn't aiming for failure, but, you know, when you try things, when you're, when you're creative, when you're, when you're trying anything new, there's potential for that. But for, fi- for failure. For failure. Of course. And, and so what? 
so what? Mm-hmm. So you put that you put that in your backpack and go, oh, okay, I failed doing this. And you may have failed for, for something completely out of your control. You know, it may not have anything to do with your abilities or where you're at at that moment. It could be timing. It could, who knows what it is? But I'd rather have tried something and failed than, than not tried yeah. and, and you just sink. So, John, do you realize that there are tons of people that don't take action in what they want because they're afraid to fail. I do. Okay. So I did not, I did not know this. I just recently realized this. Yeah. Um, And it has a lot to do with like me doing this podcast and the fact that in the past, you know, seven years, I've made a lot of taking some risks um, in my career and in my life. And in talking to people, it's uncovered that a lot of people are, afraid to take risks, afraid of failure. It's also something that keeps coming up on the podcast when people, yeah. so it's really, uh, it's interesting that I just realized this. Um, and I think it is really important for, I, I think it's important for, to kind of get over that if you are going to kind of live a life that is true it's the hero's journey yeah right wherever anybody is like if you we we all love movies and we we like a story with a a happy ending right but any good story has has you know incredible trials yeah in the midst of it yeah i don't want to go through those trials do you but but we do that's how you grow and that's how you experience cool things and see what you're made of and see what you can do that's exciting so uh, it's interesting. The uh, I wanted the desk job. So I, uh, when I was, uh, <laughs> that's what I wanted. I went to school for engineering. Wow! And I went to school for plastics engineering. Yeah. So I was planning on working on a. I don't know what a plastic engineer did, but they would be in a produ- an injection molding facility or something. And I was like, I don't want that. I want a desk job. Um, so I did got really good desk job and I ended up having, um, you know, a good career. I worked in the plastics industry as an industrial salesperson, which is actually a really good job. Yeah. But I quickly, well, no, not quickly. I realized that, um, that wasn't for me. Yeah. That I needed to do something creative. I did not realize that I needed to do something creative. I, I was a super creative kid and then I kind of put the create creative part of my brain on the back burner because I fell in love with science. But ultimately, I was always dissatisfied um, when I was in that first industry because I thought it was because of a variety of reasons. What I realize now, it's because it wasn't creative. It was transactional. Yeah. Um, it was There was nothing creative. There was no beginning, middle, end um, to what I was doing. It okay. was just like the same thing day after day. And it was really killing me. And now being a, a painter, obviously, you, you know, I have a vision for what I want to do for a series of paintings. There's a start, a middle, an end, a follow-up. And then I, I can actually use that way of thinking in other areas of my life. Um, use that creative, uh, pr- I use that creative approach to other problems yeah. and other challenges and other projects. And it's really changed the outcome uh, in a, in a positive way. That's awesome. And, and, you know, this isn't for everybody. Like I, I'm not, 
I'm not suggesting that somebody who's at a ju- desk job has failed either, right? Mm-hmm. It's like some not. people are built for that and they want that. And that's their, they're as excited about that as I am of about course. this or as you are about yours. Um, I think everybody's got to find out their thing, man. What do you, what are you living for? What do you want to do? What, what, what gets you going? It's so cool that your journey has, has uh, informed what you're doing to, today in ways that make you unique creatively. Yes. It's awesome. So John, tell me a little bit about where you are now creatively in terms of what sort of projects you work you work on. Well, so special effects makeup turned into product development. Basically the nuts and bolts are about the same. You know, you're you're designing something, you have to make it three dimensionally, and then you have to mold it and then make it moldable, you know, and have a, a piece that's plastic or something as an output injection molded or blow molded or something. And you're familiar with all I'm of very, that. I'm very, very familiar yeah. with that. So, <laughs> uh, what I found was, was that there, Chicago is a hotbed for product design and through the airbrushing t-shirts, I met toy designers because there were a lot of toy designers out in the area and I fell into that world and what I really learned when I got into that world was, first off, I loved those people. They were a lot of fun. The work was very gratifying. And I found that there were, weren't a lot of uh, resources that could draw, illustrate, and render like I could. Okay. Uh, I just had a niche. I, I was fast. I was good. I, I'm a math guy. So if something you know was going to shrink 3.5% out of the mold... I knew that I had to design it at 103.5%. And then I could draw all the views of a character, say, for Disney and get things approved by Disney. And so uh, that led me into product development. And then I uh, was doing murals as well. I had, I had a big mural. I had about 108 foot of mural come along. 108 yeah. foot mural? Yeah, it was, it was extensive over a couple of years, a couple of different contracts that I was given. Um, to paint at a library. Uh, and, and it was wonderful because I got it. You know, I, I, I had the competitive nature. It's like, okay, this job's open. I want to get this. Okay. And they wanted some samples of my work and they wanted, you know, a description of what I was going to do. But what I did is, as I said, that's not good enough. Like I'm going to, I'm going to render components of the finished mural. Like I'm going to show them what I'm going to give them. And, so I did that and I won the job, which was stellar. And I was like, I got this job. And I was like, oh no, I got this big giant job. How am I going to do this? So I was talking to some of my toy design friends and a buddy of mine said, hey, I, I've got this uh, lady, Chris, who does all this faux finishing. She works on houses. Maybe you should talk to her. Well, I spoke with her and then she said, why don't I introduce you to my interior decorators, which she did. And I gave each of them like samples of all the work that I did and they went out to residences and I was busy doing murals all year. So I was able to do these little bite-sized murals, make a really good living and figure out my process so that by the time the big mural came around to the library, I could jump into it and just go, okay, this is nothing. I'm going to do these in little bits and, and, and know what the procedure was. So that was wonderful. So I feel like your story is a sequence of different creative experiences and jobs that are kind of different and you sort of just not stumble into them, 
but they kind of it's almost like you're paying attention to what's going on oh totally and you, and you react like totally not, yeah it's yeah. totally it it's it's they'd say what luck favors the prepared yeah but but i'm like i remember francis ford coppola once said um th- that somebody asked him once what are you are you afraid of all the opportunities you're missing and he said no i'm only worried about the ones that i catch yeah and so I was always listening to people and, and I'm interested in people and, and what they do and where they are. And, and I think what, what made me opportunistic is that I was able to see where I could apply my gifts artistically to the needs of what somebody was expressing yep. to me. They may not even know themselves, yeah. but I could say, hey, I think I could help you with that. And then bam. Cool. Yeah, and I think a big part of... What, what we're talking about is just being aware and being present totally. about what is going on with in the world, paying attention to people. Um, and I think, I know for me that this has to do, I, I know that I've changed my attitude with being a little bit less of an agenda with people. Yeah. Um, like, like, cause I used to be a little bit more and this sounds awful, but this wasn't like in a, in a horrible way, but I would, the way I would choose who to interact with would be more about, um, who I thought could do something for me. Um, and it wasn't like I was a horrible person right. and, I, and I didn't even realize transaction. Yeah. And I didn't right? even realize yeah. this. I've changed that. And now I'm like, you know what? I am going to assume that people are coming into my life for a reason yeah. And I am going to embrace people and pay attention to them. And that's how I decide where I spend my time with people. And it's made a huge difference. And I think it's kind of the same thing as what, what you I would were describing, agree with you. where you're basically just sort of letting things go a little bit and paying attention to what is coming your way and trying to see how that works with your skills, with what you can bring to it, um, as opposed to looking what looking exclusively at um, what you can get from something. Completely. And I mean, where business is concerned, I'm trying to make a living, right? Yeah. So so for the most part, it's like, what what can I do for you? I, I mean, this is going to sound, I don't hope, want this to sound bad. What can I do for you uh, or offer you that, that you will compensate me for? Yeah. And I'm not asking you just to give me money. Like, I'll make it worth your while. I'm going to give you some some gold. And, you know, I had, I had one client years ago tell me, um, she was really happy with the work I was doing. She said, John McDavid, I'm make you a rich man. And it was a pretty good several years nice. after that. It was stellar. Nice. <laughs> and I like to please the clients. Yeah. I like to please people. I like to help people. I like to hear how my clients are doing. You know, I've had clients say, you know, call them up or they call you and, hey, blah, blah, blah. And I ask them, how, how are you doing? I'm okay. I just, whoa, 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 wait a second. I don't believe you. <laughs> What's going on? And sometimes they'll say, no, 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 I'm just busy. I'm really okay. Yeah. But I've had people open up to me about their marriages, about, you know, illness, all this stuff. And it's like, I get to sit there and listen to them. I get to be there for them. Yep. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So John, do you have a couple pieces of advice or guidance that you can give listeners to help them to move things forward in their lives in a creative way or using the creative part of their mind a little bit more? Oh, I do. I do. Um, I would say 
Um, well, first off, if if there's something you love to do, and I'm not talking about like I, I love to go to the health club and go swimming. I'm a good swimmer. Maybe you can make a living at that. Chances are, you know, <laughs> there's right. not a lot of application, right? <laughs> but, you know, you want to airbrush. Let's just say that's your thing. Figure out how to do it. Yep. Figure it out. And and don't 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 just give up. You you've got to do it. People who are at uh, uh, levels of success, whatever level they're at, they've they've done something. You you need to move. You need to do something. Um, and so you know, for me, if I look me, back, me, meaning you have to uh, you have to engage. Yeah. And, and do it. Yeah. So move. Apply yourself. Practice it. Visualize yourself being good at it, being successful at it. Dream about it. I read once about uh, basketball players visualizing making their free throws, mm-hmm. and and they get better. Mm-hmm. You know, visualize yourself. Imagine your, our imaginations are so powerful. Imagine yourself successful doing what it is you want to do, and it may not be like exactly the dream, but chances are. You can get closer than if you don't do that. I mean, I don't know if that's positive attitude, positive, you know, reinforcement, but dreams are powerful. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that you're kind of reconfiguring your brain all the time. I mean, we're awake a lot. So right. our brain is thinking and processing and uh, on a lot of topics for a lot of hours during the day. And if you can use that, and I think that's why like meditation is important and even in prayer is if you can use those brain cycles towards something that is positive or thinking or, 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 um, uh, visualizing something you're, I can't imagine that it's not going to help. I know when I was a gymnast, I would have like my different routines and that's how I would, whenever I had downtime, even if I wasn't in the gym, I would think of my my routine. I would just go over it and over and over it. And in my vision, it was like perfect form. Everything was executed beautifully. And then when I got to the gym and I actually did it, I kind of was, I could kind of just jump right in because my brain had already been going through it. It's brilliant. I mean, and and it does something with your muscle memory. And I mean, it just, it, it all works together. It's holistic is what it is. Um, you know, I would also say what whatever your desires are, you you need to pursue them and you need to work hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are like three really important things. Desire plus pursuit plus hard work. I mean, you almost can't fail. You almost can't fail. I, I don't know anybody who's failed who hasn't done those three things. I, I hear it from people all the time who are successful. Yeah. So you know, go well, after it. Well, I can certainly say that in talking to people that are looking at it in the reverse. Like I know that people who are successful, they all do those things for, yeah. for certain. Yeah. So that makes sense. And then maybe the final thought is, is, uh, did you ever see the movie Unbreakable with Bruce Willis? Yes. And so he's this superhero, but he doesn't know it. He's got these powers and the supervillain Samuel L. Jackson, Mr. Glass is like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're a superhero. And it's like, I'm not, leave me alone. That's the whole movie. Right. Until finally, Something happens and he realizes he is that guy. Yeah. And he says, well, what do I do now? He says, well, go to where people are and, and you'll be able to sort it out. So I, I think that's the thing with your ability when, when your skills are there, even when they're not, go do this. 
go try and find a practical way to apply your skills to people's needs. Go be a servant. Go serve people. Huge, huge. So how can people learn more about what you're up to and what kind of services you offer? Well, I can go to my website, which is mcdavittdesign.com, M-C-D-A-V-I-T-T, design, singular, dot com. And I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find. Okay, great. This was uh, a good conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Had a blast. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.